Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest on Shelf Life this week is Sherry Jones, author of the Women's Prize shortlisted novel, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House. Sherry, hello, how are you? Hello, hello, I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm very well. You're, you're joining us from uh, sunny Barbados. Yes, I am. We just got out of a traffic jam, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm here um, in Barbados at the moment, yes. Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you so much um, for joining us. Why don't we start with, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and about your book, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House? Sure. So I am a writer, yes, a lawyer and a mom of four from Barbados, born in Barbados and have lived here most of my life. Um, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House is a novel about a woman called Lala who is a hair braider on the beach in Barbados. Um, And she's married to a criminal by the name of Aiden. When we meet her at the beginning of the story, it's the night when she's about to give birth to her first baby. And on that same night, there's a gruesome murder of a wealthy white tourist um, in a villa further along the beach from where she lives. So the story really takes place over the course of one summer and it shows how those two events are connected. I think without giving too much away, <laughs> that's what the story is about. It's, it's hard to talk about um, some books, especially this one, I think, without giving too much away. Um, yes, it is, it is. We won't, we won't, we, we'll possibly touch on it a few times during, during the podcast, but we will try and avoid spoilers if we can. Um, okay. I've asked you to pick seven books that have changed or influenced your life in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Are you a big reader? Um, I am. I think I go through phases, you know, I, I go through phases of intense reading. And then if I'm working on something, especially if I am at the crafting or editing stage of a project, I don't like to read other people's work um, much at all. So I am a big reader sometimes uh, with, with life the way it is for me now. I tend to read in little, little bits. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I've been reading um, poetry more than, more than anything else, perhaps recently. So yes, I am a big reader, but it's, it starts and stops. How did you go about uh, whittling down your list to seven books? Did you find it difficult? Oh my gosh, it was so hard. It was so hard. And I, I was just then thinking, okay, I need to put that one in. And then I thought, no, no, I'm not going to put that one in because this one certainly had a bigger influence on me. But um, yeah, it really was tough just looking down to seven. <laughs> so I hope I've, I hope the ones, I hope I haven't left anything out. I hope it's not a situation where sometime after the podcast, I'm thinking, oh snap, like how could I have forgotten this one? So <laughs> apologies in 
advanced all the books I should have included. <laughs> we can we can mention a few others as we go <laughs> along. It'll be fine. <laughs> we won't. We'll try not right. to leave anyone out. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, okay. about your first book? My first book is *The Wine of Astonishment* by Earl Lovelace. Um, so Earl Lovelace is a Trinidadian writer, well known in the Caribbean. He's written a number of books. Um, and The Wine of Astonishment, I actually discovered when I was at school, at secondary school at Queens College in Barbados. And it's a book about a Baptist community in Trinidad. Um, they're called the Shelters in Trinidad. But here in Barbados, we refer to that particular religious group as spiritual Baptists. And it's a very unique um, religion in terms of some of their, their you know, religious practices, spiritual practices. And it's really about how that community deals with progress and the hope that that community places in this one character, um, you know, who they hope will be the gateway for, you know, wider understanding um, of, of themselves as a group, um, you know, and, and they place all their hopes and aspirations in this one person who eventually um, lets them down. Um, why this book was important for me was because it was the first book in which I encountered sympathy for the villain. There's this character in the book by the name of Bolo. And Bolo is like a champion stick licker. Now stick licking is almost, it's a, it's, it's, I don't know what I could compare it to, but it's, it's like boxing, but it's something that's done, you know, with sticks, just as, as it says, but there's an art to it. And, you know, he's a very strong um, character and as he grows more disillusioned with what's happening within his community um, you know his strength is turned on the community in a very um, in a very difficult way to watch but I just totally empathized with Bolo I don't think I ever looked at a villain the same after that so um, that was what made The Wine of Astonishment so remarkable for me. It was the portrayal of Bolo, Bolo's character. Did you use that when um, writing One-Armed Sister? Just because quite a lot of the characters aren't necessarily all that nice um, and yet aren't necessarily the villains of the piece either. So... Yes. So, so I definitely did. I think in my writing as a whole, and you know, you don't always know as a writer until perhaps later how you're being influenced by the things that you read. Um, and I remember just, you know, being very conscious of the fact that we are all complex human beings and depending on when you meet us, um, in life, depending on our circumstances, what we've learned, what we've been presented with, what environment we've, we've sort of come to be in, um, we make choices. Sometimes those choices are not all good. Um, and that's the same with characters. So I find after, after that book, I started to develop an empathy for people and by extension for the characters in my writing. 
Um, and that was important because I think that is reality. And in order to write authentically about people, that complexity needs to come out in the right thing. So certainly um, in how the one-armed sister sweeps her house, for example, we have Aiden, who I think is the character everybody loves to hate. You know, he's just, um, you know, for so many reasons, his conduct is reprehensible, but it helped to sort of go back into his past and sort of portray one or two defining events in his life um, to show what might have helped to shape the person he is when we meet him in the novel. And also, I think, you know, we do see this love that he, he has to the best that, you know, the, to the best of his capacity, the love that he has for his child. And, you know, I think that's true to life. So yes, I think Lovelace and the way that he portrayed Bolo, I think that was the first time I sort of came to the understanding that actually villains are not all bad. Um, and that started, started a whole, I mean, for me in terms of my writing as well as a person, I think I, I started to appreciate that aspect of humanity um, and the complexity of people a lot more. The, I mean, you said it earlier, the wine of astonishment is, uh, it sort of has religion at its centre. It, does religion play an important part in your life? Um, it, I hesitate to say religion does. What I will say is that spirituality definitely does. So I have been um, a member of or, or attended a number of churches in my lifetime. Now Barbados has a very rich community um, or a rich culture as it relates to church going and spirituality. I've attended, you know, the Pentecostal churches. I've, you know, been a member of baptized, a, a confirmed, what, what we call confirmed member of the Anglican church. I've been a member of the Orthodox church. You know, I don't know, perhaps surprisingly. <laughs> and I've investigated a number of other spiritual practices as well. So um, I don't, I wouldn't say that religion plays a large part in my life, but I think spirituality definitely does. What's your second choice? My second choice is Miguel Street by B.S. Naipaul. So Miguel Street was written or was published um, just around, I think it was 1955, sort of um, at that point in time where a number of Caribbean islands were just on the cusp of independence. Um, and it's, uh, some people, you know, it's a novel. Some people say that it's a series of character sketches or interlinked stories about the people who live in Miguel Street. And it's mainly from the perspective of a young boy who lives in the street and it talks about, you know, the various characters um, who live in Trinidad at that time. And, you know, this book was, was special to me in, you know, for so many reasons. I think it contributed a lot to my development 
of characterization as a writer, um, and also my love for the short story form, even though, yes, it is a novel, <laughs> but based on how it's structured, I think that that um, duality um, is something that has, has always intrigued me. Um, so yes, uh, Miguel Street is definitely, definitely has a, a special place in my life as far as books are concerned. You say about it, it, it is a novel, but it is also, like you say, a collection of short stories in, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Do you write yeah. short stories? I do. I wrote, I considered myself, you know, primarily a short story writer for a very long period of time. And even in writing How the One Armed Sister Sweeps Her House, that book started as a short story. I thought it was going to be a short story when I when I started to write it. And of course, you know, it just developed, it kind of snowballed and I realized I needed a larger word space um, to work with in telling Lala's story. Um, and so then it became a novel, but yes, um, short stories definitely have been a large part of my development as a writer. And I have written many, many, many short stories. Do you, <laughs> do you prefer writing short stories to the novel or is it, is it completely separate for you? Well, I think it's completely separate. The thing I like about short stories is just kind of being able to sort of zoom in, land on the wall, talk about what's happening, pull in just the relevant details and sort of get out of the room. Um, I love that, you know, and I love short stories that tell as much by what they don't say as by what is actually said, what actually makes it onto the page. So yes, I mean, my, my love for short stories remains. Um, novels, I love novels as well. I think for me, my preference in terms of writing is probably short stories. And interestingly enough, um, around the time that I started working on this novel, I also discovered flash fiction, which I didn't know was a thing before, sort of a fully formed story in 300 words or less. Um, and I really got into that as well. So, I mean, the, the, the idea of distillation and economy of language is a, is a big thing for me in my writing. And I think that also made its way um, into the novel, but really the form that I choose is dictated by the story itself. Um, so whether something you know, eventually becomes a short story, a piece of flash fiction or a longer piece, I think really depends on what story it is that I'm telling. You said about discovering flash fiction at the same time as you were writing this. Does that mean that you were writing multiple stories at once or do you concentrate on one thing and then do the next one? <laughs> so that that actually happened, my discovery of, of um, flash fiction actually happened while I was studying. And I started it um, as a way to get around writer's block. I had a friend of mine in class who said, well, you know, why don't you try flash fiction? You know, that might help you just start, sort of, you know, free your mind and reconnect with the muse and, you know, just write what, what, else, what it is that you're trying to write. Um, so that was a happy accident of sorts, I'd say. Um, 
but yeah, I've forgotten the 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 other part of the question. Do, do you write it? At, <laughs> do you write at the same time as you're writing? A, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I definitely do. Um, so now, for example, I am working on a collection of flash fiction about parts of the body, and I'm also working on another novel set on a cocoa plantation in Trinidad in the mid 19th century. Um, so yes, I do, you know, go sort of between forms and between stories. I can be working on more than one project at a time, yes. What's your next book? My next book is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Um, and this book, you know, this is one of the books that I read this book and I was so blown away by it. Um, it was just unlike anything I had ever read before. And I think what I found most fascinating about it creatively was the structure. Um, but it is a story about a little girl called um, Pecola Breedlove um, who wants to have blue eyes and her standard of beauty. She is a little um, black girl, a girl of color. And it's, it's, it was just so sad and so, so moving um, that this little girl prayed for blue eyes because she thought they would make her beautiful. And, you know, blue eyes, you know, are absolutely impossible for her to obtain. But it was, you know, the fact that this was society's standard of beauty and she was suffering in so many other ways. Um, and she just wanted to be beautiful and you know the book deals with a lot of other a lot of other issues as well but that was the thing that stood out for me that and and the way that Toni Morrison wrote it I mean there were just parts of that book I just remember being breathless like you know actually reading the words on the page and having to to kind of like just catch my breath it was so beautiful so yeah, that was that was a, a a really you know pivotal moment for me in terms of my development as a writer and as a person. I think what also moved me about it was the the themes that came out in that book. You know, there were things, there were there were issues that I had also thought of and I had also encountered. And I think that was the point at which I understood how political fiction could be and, and how it could contribute to the development of the psyche at an individual level, at a community, community level, and at a national level as well. So I think that, you know, that book was just, that was a defining moment for me um, in terms of my reading and writing. Uh, I mean, you say there are quite a few different topic, topics in, in this book that are touched upon, but did you find that you recognised yourself as a young girl in the character in terms of, in terms of her race and her aspirations to, yeah. to that? Yeah, so um, I don't think, I've never wanted as a young girl, you know, to have blue eyes or to be any color other than 
you know, the beautiful brown that I am. Not that anything else isn't beautiful, but I, I think I was quite centered in, you know, what I looked like and who I was as a person. Um, but there were some things that had caused me to question. So for example, whenever I read a magazine, I mean, reading Essence magazine for me um, as a young girl was just a very moving experience because prior to that, all of the models in the magazines had been Caucasian or very light skinned with long straight hair. And it was just like, this was something that I felt um, I was expected to aspire to in order to be considered beautiful. And, you know, it just didn't fit. I just didn't have that physique. I didn't have that, that look. Um, and it was a process of self-discovery as I grew older and self-acceptance um, as it became apparent that, you know, this is the standard. I mean, so much has changed now, but at the time I read that book, I think it was still the, the, the standard of beauty, even here in the Caribbean where the majority of the population doesn't look like that. You know, we're very mixed in terms of ethnicity in the Caribbean as a whole. Um, but, you know, it, it, really, it really was a case where hair presented in a book, in a story, was a concern or a question that I had asked myself, like, like why is the standard of beauty um, what it is? Is it realistic for people who look like me? Should this be the standard of beauty? Um, and I think I then really started to appreciate the whole notion of a story being a safe space. I just love the idea of being able to enter a fictional room um, and look at a question or an issue from the perspective of somebody else and sort of see how they work through it and perhaps work through it with them. And then not only bring my own experiences to my reading and understanding of that story, but also take away something from it. So, you know, like I said, that the, it's, it's even hard for me to talk about. It's so strange. It's like, I, you know, I just love um, Toni Morrison's work, but that was another one of the things that I got from that experience. The whole concept of story as a safe space to explore difficult topics that maybe we find a little bit harder to, um, to have a conversation about um, in real life. So that was one of the things that, that that story did for me. The Bluest Eye was um, the subject of quite a few bands, uh, uh, book bands across America, largely, I think, because of some of the controversial topics it includes, such as incest and molestation. Uh, yes. For anyone who hasn't read the book but might like to, how extreme do you think it goes? Should it have ever been banned? Is it too, is it aimed at the wrong age audience? What do you think about that? So now I am probably not the best person to ask this question because I don't think any book should be banned, ever. <laughs> That's just my view. 
You know, if you start reading something and it offends your sensibilities in some way, I think that's a good point at which to ask why. You know, why does this, why is this so offensive? You know, is it not true? Does it demonstrate a side of humanity that I'm uncomfortable with for some reason? I don't think any society is ever advanced by um, censorship. Um, you know, and, and just the fact of discomfort for me, it's almost like a wound on your skin or a cut somewhere. Pain tells you that there's there's something to be explored, there's something to be resolved. So the answer to that is no. I don't think it 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 should have been banned ever for any reason. Um, I know that I am uncomfortable, for example, with graphic depictions of violence in, you know, in any form, but in fiction, especially in movies, for example. You know, if it gets to a point where I feel the violence is gratuitous and I can't read it, continue reading it, I'll just stop. Um, and I think everybody has that choice. And I think that those types of choices, whether or not we engage with somebody's art, um, should always be a personal choice and never, um, you know, never one that's made by society on our behalf. So short version, because I do know I can go on a bit, <laughs> is no. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> What's your next choice? Oh, so my next choice is The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. Um, so I read The Chrysalis. This was one of my, The Chrysalids, sorry. This was one of my books when I first entered secondary school. So in first form at Queen's College, we had this book to read. And, you know, it was so, it was kind of like strange. It, there was a little bit of, you know, I, for want of a better better word. It was, it was a little bit of fantasy. It was like an alternative world. And I found that intriguing. But what I loved about it was reading about fringe dwellers, because I think it was then becoming apparent to me that in my own reality, I was definitely one of them. You know, I was sort of somebody who didn't quite fit the mold. I think at that point in time, you know, I perhaps recognized that I wasn't interested in some of the things that my peers at the time um, would have been interested in. And, you know, I didn't look at a lot of things in the same way. And I did feel a little bit like a fringe dweller because of it, because there weren't many people who um, shared my interests and shared some of my views. And I think that is what the chrysalids did for me. So um, it was, you know, in a very short synopsis, it was essentially about um, a group of children, some of whom demonstrate um, characteristics that are not considered normal. And that's a very dangerous thing to be in, in the, the world that that we're presented with in the chrysalids. And there is, I mean, there's one character, um, Sophie, I love her character, but 
they are two characters who um, pretty much realize that they are not normal, but that the their abnormalities are less visible to the naked eye. And it's about trying to sort of keep those abilities under wraps for as long as it takes um, to survive in that world and perhaps to find um, somewhere that they belong. So yes, again, that's, that's what I'd say about it. And what I loved about it was the fact that you know, here was a, a story about people who did not fit the norm, who, who, who were not the norm, did not fit the mold, and that was okay. And actually, by the end of the novel, I thought, you know, actually, that was kind of badass. That was, that was like the best thing, the fact that they were um, not normal. And um, yeah, so that, that allowed me to start to appreciate my differences and differences in other people and to accept that at the end of the day, whatever is, is normal at some level. Whatever is, is normal. So that was that was the Chrysalids for me. So the Chrysalids is a science fiction novel, uh, quite different from uh, the other books that you've chosen today. Uh, do you read a, a wide range of genres or was this a bit of an anomaly for you? Uh, well, the thing about the chrysalids was I had to read it because it was, you know, it was, <laughs> it was one of the prescribed texts at school at the time. So I didn't have a choice. And I was always the child who kind of read and reread my set texts for English literature before I even got to school, you know, before we even got into class. So I read a, a wide range of, of, I'd say, stories any story that interests me, I will read. Science fiction is not something that I've read a whole lot of. Um, I did read uh, Karen Lord. She's another, she's a, a Bajan author and she writes science fiction or fantasy. Um, and Redemption in Indigo. Uh, and that story was, it was a beautiful story for me. It was just, um, you know, there was a little bit of sort of African mythology in there. There was the, the, the whole concept of mysticism and alternative realities. And, you know, I just thought that was fantastic. So I do read widely, you know, basically if it's a story that I find interesting or important in any way or resonant for some reason or the other, I'll read no matter what, what the accepted genre is, I will read it, yes. And what about your writing? Would you ever be tempted to go into that genre of oh. writing? Um, I definitely would, you know, I think my writing, you know, in writing, I consider myself in service to a story. So at the end of the day, and it took me quite some time to get to that point where, you know, the story is paramount and that's all I'm loyal to. Um, you know, so yes, I, I actually find that my flash fiction is, is you know, it's, it's more along the lines of, I guess, magical realism or or something in, in my flash fiction, I think is, is the form in which I felt most free or demonstrated the most freedom. I mean, 
the, the, the most, I wrote one, for example, about a woman who wakes up one morning and realizes that her breasts have run away, for example. Um, there's a story about that. Now I'm working on one where there's a like a bronze statue um, in Haggett Hall in Barbados um, of this slave who led a rebellion, um, you know, in Barbados long time ago. And in my story, he gets down off of the pedestal that he's on and takes a walk into Bridgetown. And he's sort of marveling at the differences between what he thought he fought for and what actually is. So, you know, I, I just, you know, I'm in service to the story. And if that means, you know, deviating from what I might usually write in terms of form, structure, genre, I absolutely, absolutely willing to do that. Where, if somebody wanted to read your flash fiction or your short stories, is it available? Do you have a blog or is it, uh, are you saving them up for a collection? Um, I am saving some of them up for a collection, but you can find some online. So I have one that was published in Pank online. Um, and that is, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the, it's in 2015, I think, early 2015. And that one was called Some Men Are Salty, Some Men Are Salty. And it's about, about a girl who, who basically eats, eats men. Um, yes, so <laughs> Some Men Are Salty was published in Pank Online. Um, the Feminist Wire has also published a couple of my flash fiction pieces. This was July 2015, I think. Um, one of them called Mammaries that I told you about, about the woman who wakes up and her breasts run away. Um, and then another one. So I do have sort of short, you know, flash fiction pieces published one or other place. I've had them shortlisted or longlisted both for the Bridport Prize for flash fiction, as well as the Mislexia um, flash fiction competition. So yes, those ones haven't been published. They were entered in competitions and, and you know, had some success, but they haven't actually been published. So I'm hoping one day soon to bring out a collection. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Yes. Um, what's your next book? So my next book is, I'm going to do this one first. Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. So I think what I loved most about this book was the agency that the main character, I, I can't even say that she had it. I just feel like she took it. She owned her life, especially as it related to her romantic choices. And what I found really intriguing um, as the story goes on was the point at which as a relatively wealthy woman or a woman of means, she falls in love with somebody who, um, you know, most people would consider way below her, her station. I mean, we, we, 
these are kind of old fashioned concepts that perhaps don't apply in the same way anymore. But certainly um, as a girl in the Caribbean growing up, that is something that I had encountered in terms of a particular attitude or approach to women of means from certain families who married or became involved with men who, you know, that society might not feel quite measured up. Um, and so I found that fascinating. I also found the fact that she killed him at the end um, and the circumstances quite, you know, quite heart-wrenching um, in one sense, but also demonstrating a type of strength that, you know, I just found amazing in a female character. So that was definitely a book um, for me that emphasized strength and resilience as a woman. Um, and also made me think a lot about, you know, what love really is, what it should be, um, what marriage is, what it should be, you know, what society says it is, and maybe, you know, what my view of it, of it is. So that book was, was another one that just, you know, stayed with me for a long time. I love the strength of um, Jamie. Where were you when you read this? Was this a one that was a school text? No, this was one that I discovered, I think, when I was at um, university. This would have been, you know, I was quite late to the game, you know, I think for Zora Neale Hurston. Um, this would have been in 1992 or thereabouts when I joined, um, started university and joined the Creative Writing Society and found a community of, of people at university who were similarly interested or, you know, shared that love for literature and for writing. Um, and I remember somebody had suggested that I read that book. Um, and I did. And, you know, it, I found it really, really really moving. So that would have been probably around 1992, I think, when I, when I read that. Uh, so it was a recommendation. Is that how you normally pick your next read or are you go into a bookshop and just start digging around to see what might, might appeal? Oh, both, both, absolutely. You know, um, I will go into a bookshop and just have a browse. Um, but I like recommendations in one sense because, you know, there's the type of recommendation that's pretty much, well, if you liked Marlon James, you'll probably like this particular writer, which is great. But, you know, I think then sometimes the opportunities for um, entering new rooms, um, and learning or hearing new stories is a little restricted. So there's that type of recommendation. And then there's the recommendation that, you know, you've got to read this book. Like I've never read anything like it. And it's kind of outside of what you would normally read, but um, 
you do it anyway as it's like you're transformed or something new it's like a new vista opens up and i've had some of those experiences um so i will go on recommendations i go on browsing you know i tend to I do look at reviews. Um, sometimes a new book comes out and there's a review about it in a newspaper somewhere. But um, as a writer, I regard reviews with suspicion sometimes. <laughs> so I won't necessarily be swayed one way or the other by a review, but it will give me, if it's well written, it will give me an idea of whether it's a book that I might, I might want to read. So yeah, I, I um, I'll read pretty much, like I said, pretty much anything, recommendation or growth. It's fine by me. I think you're right about the, if you like, you'll love sort of recommendation. Because it's a bit, yes. it can be a bit hit and miss. Um, I, yeah. I interviewed Dawny Walton um, a few weeks ago who wrote the final revival of Opal and Nev. And she chose, yeah. she chose this same book, The Eyes, Their really? Eyes Are Watching God. Watching God, yes. And she, but she got something very different out of it. She grew up in Florida and she read it a bit younger. And for yeah. her, it was this realization of code switching because all of the people in her class didn't understand some elements of the book. Yeah. Whereas for her, yeah. it was, and it she realized, and she realized yeah. that she was she was code switching. She hadn't really put a name to it before. Yes. And but but like you say, you've then got different things out of it and uh, read it yes. at a different age. So I think you yes. can't necessarily say that because you both what? love this book, you're like yes. it'll be else. the same. No, people, and, and that's something that I've had to appreciate even with my own writing. People bring who they are and what they've experienced to a particular piece of work you know so sometimes I'll be people will be asking me about my book and they will say I mean I had a question the other day um, and the person raised something with me that I had never thought of never consciously intended in writing the book so you know it very much is and that isn't that just part of the beauty of literature that you know so many different people can can come to one work and just take so many different things away from it. I think that's part of the reason books are so wonderful. I agree. What's your next choice? Summer Lightning by Olive Senior. So Summer Lightning is a collection of short stories and it's written by a Jamaican author called Olive Senior. And it's really about so many aspects of life in the Caribbean. So this was one of those books that I picked up and I read in one sitting. It's like that good chocolate that you just sort of like get a little taste of and then you swallow it whole and then you're sorry. <laughs> and you have to kind of bite another one and go back to it. But um, yeah, Summer Lightning for me was was uh was that book i really appreciated um olive senior's craft in writing the stories and what i loved about it is the way in which she managed to bring caribbean life and certainly i felt um the concerns of women in the caribbean to the fore and the position of women um 
with all the color and vibrance and unique cultural um, truths about life in the Caribbean. So that was that was definitely um, a book that that moved me in that way. Olive Senior won uh, quite a few awards, um, but including for this one, the Commonwealth Writers Prize. Obviously, One Armed Sister is shortlisted for the Women's Prize. How did how did that make you feel when you got onto that list? Where where were you when you heard that news, and and did you celebrate? <laughs> wow, um, I actually got that news in an email when I when I heard I was longlisted and shortlisted. Um, I got an email from my publisher. And I think it was my editor who told me. And I just realized all of a sudden, I just like, I got a flurry of emails around the same time. And I was like, what's happening? And I saw the subject line was women's prize. I thought, you know, and it was, it was like my, my thumbs were kind of trembling when I went to open it and I saw this thing and I just thought, oh my goodness, could this be real? I have had so many pinch me moments um on the on this journey with with how the one armed sister sweeps her house and that was definitely one of them um both in terms of the long listing and then the eventual short listing so i remember just looking at the phone and my hands just started to shake it was just, it was just like i don't know it was just this experience like this can't really be happening but after that, it was just a whole set of joy, a lot of joy. Do you know when we, do, do you hear about the winner of the prize before anyone else? Or are you going to be waiting on the night? Oh, actually, I'm not sure because the, the, with the long listing and short listing, I found out just a little bit ahead, um, I think, of the general announcement. And I will tell you now, that was one of the hardest secrets to <laughs> Oh my goodness, I wanted to talk about it so badly, but <laughs> um, yeah, so I did find out a little bit in advance for the other two. I'm not sure if they're going to do that for the announcement. Um, so who knows, if I get another email like that that I'm not expecting, I don't know what I will do, but <laughs> no, no news yet. I don't know. Well, good luck. Um, this book, The Summer Lightning, was published in 1986, I think. Um, and that's actually the most recent book on your list of seven that you've chosen. Do you read uh, a lot of classics? Is it a symptom of that? Or are you, do you read modern books as well? I read, like I said, I read, you know, I read, I think, pretty widely. I'm not, I don't restrict myself. I like to read um, classics, what we call classics, I guess, but I also read contemporary novelists. I think for me, um, I don't think it's it's by accident that a lot of those books were were chosen from a particular time in my life in terms of when I read them. Because I think that period of time was really pivotal, really pivotal to the person and the writer that I eventually became. 
So I think a lot of the books that I've chosen are books that molded and shaped me as a writer, but also in terms of who I am as a person, what I took away from those books. Um, so I, I have read many books recently. There's one book that I'm thinking of and I'm saying, oh, you know, this is one of the ones that didn't make the list. And it's more, it's more recent. It's by Leanne Shapton. I know we're not gonna really talk about it, but at least I gave it a mention. Um, and it's a book that's told in the form of an auction catalog. And it's really about the end of a relationship between two people. Um, and you know, I what I found fascinating about this book was the form, the experimentation with form. This was no less a story because it was told in the form of an auction catalog. And I mean, I've said that I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole you know, distillation of thought and economy of language. And I just think this was so well done. And I read that as part of my um, syllabus when I did my MA um, in writing that was in 2013, 2014. So, and that, I don't think it was published too long before that. So it is relatively new and it's one of the ones that didn't make the list, but <laughs> I'll actually have to look up because it has a really, really long title too. That's another way that it influenced me because I read it and I thought, of course you can have a long title. Oh, you know, she does it really well and it was it was an excellent book I want to make sure I'm gonna have to um I'm gonna have to look it up because I wanna I want to get the name absolutely right important artifacts and personal property from the collection of Lenore Doolin and Harold Morris including books street fashion and jewelry and it's by Leanne Shapton and it's fantastic. Everybody read that book, please. What's your final choice? My final choice is I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Um, so again, this book follows, uh, it's autobiographical um, and it's, some people say it's autobiographical fiction because of, of the manner in which it's told and in which she tells the story, but it's about a little girl um, who goes through some really difficult experiences. A young black girl, she experiences racism. She and her brother feel, um, you know, left out by their parents. She suffers sexual abuse that traumatizes her. Um, she becomes a teenage mother. Um, and it's really about, you know, self-awakening and, you know, how difficult experiences shape a person. And, you know, I've talked about that in my own writing. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I might demonstrate such empathy for my characters, even the characters that are considered bad, um, because I'm so conscious of the fact that difficult experiences shape who we are. 
And a lot of times, you know, any resulting dysfunction is because we probably haven't processed those well. So for me, I appreciated the honesty with which um, Maya Angelou told her story. Um, I appreciated the courage in the telling in terms of how she addressed difficult themes. And again, it was, it was one of those stories that was just, you know, when you read the whole series, because it's part of a series, um, it was just triumphant. It was like all these things have happened and, you know, I've learned from them, I've grown from them. So here I am, all the better for the happening. And um, that touched me really, really deeply because I also felt that I'd had some diff difficult experiences at different points in my life. So it was, it was perhaps a sense of, again, being able to enter that book and find a character um, who resonated with me in some respects and who by their own triumph of sorts demonstrated for me that that was possible for me as well. Do you think you'd ever write your own biography? <laughs> Listen, I've told my kids I am going to write um, about my life and they have my permission to publish it. I think from the age of about 80, of about 88, when I, by then I think I absolutely won't care anymore. <laughs> um, if not, after I'm gone, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's a standard joke that we have, but I think I would, yes. I think um, autobiography takes such courage and such craft because you still have, you're still telling a story and you still have to, you know, you still have to craft it. You still have to pull out what's relevant, what's important, what aspect of your life is the story that you're telling. Not everything that happened in your life is relevant. Um, so I do admire um, the craft that, that's involved in that. Um, and, and also the courage to tell, tell the real story, tell it truthfully, tell it Fully. Um, yeah, but perhaps not just yet. Maya Angelou is one of those figures that has inspired so many people, and uh, a lot of a lot of writers say that that she is the one that made them want to write. Is that yes. the case for you, or did you already know you wanted to be a writer? Now, the thing about about um, I always sort of pause at that question because. I don't think there was ever a point in time in my life where I didn't inhabit that identity. I always knew I was a writer. It was just so intrinsic to who I was. I remember being six years old and filling um, what we call an exercise book, like just a little book um, that you'd write in for school. And I'd go from cover to cover. And for me at that point in time, that was a novel. Once I could write from one cover to the other, I'd written a novel. Um, and that stayed with me, you know, throughout my entire life. I think that it got to the point 
you know, where I kind of took it for granted because it was just something that I was compelled to do. I did anyway. And it never occurred to me that somebody could make a living from it. So that's, I think that's the whole distinction. It was always a part of who I am, but in terms of pursuing it as, as a, as a profession, as a vocation, as a calling, I just never, that didn't enter my consciousness until much, much later, but Maya Angelou definitely inspired me. Um, like I said, a, a lot of it had to do with the courage in her storytelling, the courage and the triumph. Um, and she just seemed like a person who had taken all of her experiences and been generous with them. Some very, very difficult um, difficult experiences that she'd had and she generously shared them with the world and shared what she had learned from them and it was so beautifully written as well so you know i i don't think there was ever a point in time where i doubted that i was a writer i think it took me a very long time to accept that that was perhaps something that was worthy of pursuit as a profession yeah if I made you pick just one of these seven books as being oh. the most important, which one would you pick? I was hoping you weren't going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Which of these would I pick? Wow. Wow, this is so tough. Um, oh, um, I think I would have to say I picked the Lovelace, The Wine of Astonishment. And, you know, I will admit to sort of feeling a little guilty about that because, you know, I'm there thinking, oh, maybe I should be, you know, people might say she didn't even choose like a, a female author or um, somebody from Barbados, where I'm from, or, you know, people will have their own, I guess, perspectives on that. But for me, it's the story. It's the story. I'm just looking at the story. And this story moved me in a way that stays with me. I haven't reread this book um, in recent years. I still have a copy um, inside. It's one of the ones that moves with me. When I move overseas, that book goes with me and it comes back. That one, it never leaves. But um, I just, I just love the wine of astonishment. And I loved, like I said, Bolo's character, you know, that just stayed with me for a very, very long time. So I choose the wine of astonishment by Earl Lovelace. You've already given us a couple of clues about what you're doing next, the book, the novel on the cocoa plantation in the mid 19th century. Can you tell us any more about that? <laughs> um, well, I guess I could. Um, so I went to Trinidad on business in September 2019, and I toured a cocoa plantation, cocoa estate, um, called Orgnola Estates. And, you know, some of my best stories come to me in a strange way. It's almost as if, I feel as if I received the story. So I remember I'd taken my camera with me because photography is another one of my passions. And I was just standing, it was this vast expanse of green. Um, 
and there were some lovely trees and there was just this tiny little building off in the distance with a red roof, a very modest white sort of concrete structure with this little roof. And I was just staring at it and staring at it. And then this character, an eight-year-old girl called Nib, popped into my head and started to talk to me. Um, and that's how this story started and it's developed from there. So I don't always know how my story is gonna end. I'm still at the point of receiving this story. So for me, that's like the first stage of my writing process. Um, I'm hearing from the characters, I'm seeing things in my head and I'm trying mostly to get all that down. But Nib is a little bit of uh, a loner um, and she might have burned down a barn. That's about as much as I can tell you at this point. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, fingers crossed we get to see it soon. Um, Cherie Jones, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. My guest this week was Cherie Jones and how the one-armed sister sweeps her house is available to order at birdsbooks.co.uk right now. The Women's Prize winner is announced on the 8th of September. Press subscribe to join me next time when another author explores their shelf life.